When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to Naked Neuroscience, the podcast exploring the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. I'm Katie Haler, and this month... Often you're seeing yourself on the camera, which is really distracting, and so you're sort of having to work a bit harder with all of these aspects of engagement because some of the stuff that would naturally be there is missing. We're lifting the lid on the mind under lockdown. What's going on in the brain when you're having a virtual conversation compared to one face-to-face? Could teenagers' mental well-being relate to whether they adhere to social distancing measures or not? And how to look after your mental health during this lockdown? But first, time for some naked neuroscience news. This month, cognitive neuroscientist Duncan Astle from Cambridge University has been looking at a paper about sniffing. Specifically, using sniffing in a clinical context to assess how consciously aware someone is. Brain injuries can render someone in various states of conscious awareness, from a full coma at one end of the scale towards the more conscious end. Duncan explained that it can be really difficult to determine someone's level of consciousness and the paper he's been looking at sets out to use the sniff response test to try and figure this out. Well, the idea is that your sniff response might be very closely related to relatively automatic brain processes. When you sniff something really unpleasant, like some sweaty shoes or something, without perhaps even realising it, your body adjusts your breathing pattern to accommodate the fact that there's a really foul odour. Sometimes you're aware of that, but sometimes you're not aware of that at all. Your brain's doing it in the background. And so they're trying to rely upon this relatively automatic brain response as a way of getting a reliable readout of essentially how consciously aware the person is. Is it then that if you smell something awful, you breathe, what, less or more shallowly, so you're not taking as much in? Yeah, exactly. What specifically do they do to try and test this idea? They had 43 patients, and for every patient, they would do the sniff test. So they would present different smells that were either um, neutral, pleasant smells like shampoo, or unpleasant smells like rotten fish. And after each presentation, they would look at people's breathing patterns, so the flow of air through the nose as they intake breath. Within each session, they would have multiple smells that they would present. After every session, they would administer a clinical assessment that tries to evaluate how conscious someone is. So whether they're, say, in a minimally conscious state or at the other end of the scale, whether they are essentially in a coma, what's sometimes called unresponsive wakefulness syndrome or what used to be called a vegetative state. 
And what they were able to show was that if you were more at the severe end, those subjects did not differentiate the different smells. The air flowing through their nose wouldn't change depending upon whether there was a pleasant smell, an unpleasant smell, or a neutral smell. However, at the other end of the scale, the closest to being conscious, those patients would very reliably distinguish those different types of smells. So there'd be different intakes of breath depending upon the type of smell. And actually, there were 10 patients more at the severe end who did show a differentiation of smell. And that might kind of seem surprising, but when they tracked those 10 individuals, all of them later transitioned to the much milder, minimally conscious state. So it actually seemed to be that the sniff test was a better way of predicting their future prognosis than the standard clinical assessment. Why is it that this sniff test might outperform other checks? I think the reason the sniff test works so well is in a way it's quite a crude response and is thus seemingly very reliable. The physiological response to some disgusting smell, which seems to be so automatic that it can actually tell you about some underlying awareness and potential prognosis, so potential for improvement, seems to be really robust. Can we be confident that 43 people are enough to say something meaningful about this study? Yeah, so how many people do you need in order to know is a really good question. Ultimately, the more people you have, the better. The fact that the effect is so robust and so clear in only 43 patients suggests to me that we should have some confidence about it. Now, ultimately, the real acid test is going to be when you scale this up. So imagine that the sniff test became incorporated with standard clinical guidelines for assessing patients who are in this condition. Then you can start to collect data on a scale, on a kind of national scale, to see whether this really, really works in frontline clinical practice. And that's ultimately going to be the the kind of acid test of whether this has real value in practice. How would you view how significant this test is? Really good question. So I guess there's two ways of thinking about it. One is about clinical utility. The more aware or more conscious the participant is, the better their chances of recovery. And that might drive certain types of clinical decision. So that's one side of the coin. The other side is about what's it like for relatives and the loved ones of these individuals. You can imagine it's very, very difficult when you are unsure how aware the person is. And so I think that potentially there are kind of two benefits. One is to the clinical care or the clinical team. And I think the other is providing more information to the relatives of, the, of these patients. It seems like a relatively easy test to implement. With these assessments, they have to be standardised, right? So you have to know that if you're down in Adambrooks and you are in a minimally conscious state or you're unresponsive, you're going to be given the same kind of tests as you'd be given anywhere else in the country or in the world for that matter. The only challenge I can think of is standardising. Thanks, Duncan. And that paper was published in the journal Nature. Now, the paper Helen Keyes perceptual psychologist from Anglia Ruskin University has been looking at this month, deals with the rather disconcerting theory of cognitive dissonance, the mental difficulty that can arise when one's behaviour conflicts with one's beliefs. In order to resolve this conflict, you could change your behaviour or your beliefs. But Helen points out that this paper is suggesting a third option, change your memory. So here, in a series of experiments that involved quite a lot of people, over 3,000 people in total, participants were made to make a series of five decisions where they got to choose 
how much of a pot of money they would give to an anonymous fellow participant. So they chose how much money they would keep and how much to give to the anonymous partner. And later on, unbeknownst to them, they were then asked to recall how much on average they gave to their partner. And to avoid inflation effects, so where the participant was trying to just look good, the participants were financially incentivized to remember correctly. And across all of the studies that they did, they found that stingy participants remembered giving more than they actually did. So they were misremembering. And this wasn't the case for generous participants. So it wasn't a general inflation effect that everybody just remembered giving more money. If you were generous initially in what you actually gave, you remembered pretty accurately. But if you were stingy in your behavior, you misremembered, you remembered giving more money than you did. And this was particularly true for participants who had a high standard of behavior for themselves. So it looks like when people think their own actions are selfish or unfair, they misremember having acted more fairly, which preserves their image of themselves as a good person. And I think the take home here is really that the brain is rather efficient, as we know. So it adds to our evidence that the brain always uses its resources very wisely. Why bother changing your behavior or even your attitudes when you can simply change your memory of an event? Well played, brain. And it might explain why we often remember events so differently from one another. If everyone has a tendency to remember themselves in the best light, uh, this might explain why we really can have two different versions of events. Finally, it might prompt us to examine our actual behavior with more scrutiny before we feel comfortable with our idea of ourselves as a good person. It makes me feel quite disconcerted. How do we know this is motivated behavior? Are they able to control for genuinely just misremembering something? So we know that it wasn't a general misremembering effect because people in different groups behave so differently. So people were really accurate in remembering how much they gave if if they were generous givers. And indeed, the more that you saw yourself as differing from your own ideal, so if you really did believe that in a certain fair distribution across society, those people had a stronger misremembering effect than people who didn't really care about fairness in the first place. And so there's no reason to think that those people would have worse memories. It's very likely a motivated effect in order to protect our own self-image. Do we think this is a, I don't really want to put a value judgment on it. I was going to say good thing, but is it a self-preservation thing or are we just deluding ourselves? It's, It's really disconcerting to think that our memories perhaps aren't as objective as we think they are. From a cognitive psychologist's point of view, we're less interested in in morals and what is good and what is bad. We're more interested in in what the brain does that's efficient and that's clever. And this is really a very clever thing for the brain to do. If we do have a drive as humans to see ourselves as good, generous, fair, honest people, if that's something that we value, it's really nifty from a cognitive psychology point of view that your brain can can get there, can do that really efficiently without having to do much work with regards to actually changing. But do you think there's perhaps a wider implication to this? I'm just thinking about situations where you do rely on your memory to be objective, like, I don't know, say if you were being interviewed by the police or something, I'd say objectivity must be pretty important there, right? 
Absolutely. I, I mean, there's just a huge body of evidence to show that our, our memory is, is absolutely not um, an objective thing and that we sh- we shouldn't be relying on it. Famously, eyewitness testimony is, is terribly inaccurate. Uh, we misremember things for all sorts of reasons. I think what this paper is adding is that we don't just misremember things because we have a particular interest or focus on one aspect of what's happening. We might actually misremember things just to make ourselves feel better. Duncan, is there anything you want to add? One of the challenges is that people are not very good with nuance, right? We like to have this notion people are good people or bad people. And we're not very comfortable with the idea that even people who are who are good and you know, they're not monsters might do some bad stuff. We've kind of strayed into this realm where people are either good people or they're bad people. And this study kind of goes to that, right? Is that if your own actions are not sort of in keeping with the view that you have yourself, right? Well, then we just adjust the memory slightly so that it's less inconvenient. We're not so comfortable with the idea of, well, like maybe it was a bit stingy back there, but it doesn't make me think that I'm not a good person. It's all kind of part and parcel, I think, of this sort of slight dichotomy that we've developed. It just really freaks me out. It makes me feel like I'm, maybe I am in the Matrix after all. <laughs> that paper was published in the journal Nature Communications, and you can find the references to both papers discussed in the first subsection of this show's webpage. Search nakedscientist.com slash neuroscience. If you listened to last month's episode, you will have caught the paper Helen was discussing about online strategy games and improved cognition. And some of you got in touch wanting to know if this is a case of correlation rather than causation. Perhaps people who go on to become pro gamers are simply better at dealing with rapid fire stimuli from the start. I put this to Helen, who said that we can't be sure it's causative. Obviously, people with better perceptual or cognitive skills might be drawn to these types of games because they are good at them. The accepted protocol in this area, she says, is to recruit gamers who've played a lot versus gamers who've played for less time, rather than using non-gamers as the control. This methodology tries to go some way to ensuring that the same type of people are included in the two groups i.e. those who might be drawn to gaming for whatever reason and who like it enough to stick around for at least a while. A better study, she says, would obviously involve measuring gamers' cognitive skills as they began their gaming career and measuring this over time in a longitudinal design. So apologies for not covering this in the interview itself and thanks very much for your comments. And if there's a question you'd like us to address or a topic you want us to talk about, get in touch. You can email neuroscience at nakedscientist.com. Hello, I'm Chris Barrow, bringing you a brand new podcast called Naked Gaming. This is where we look at gaming news. 5,000 games have been made available in the UK for frontline NHS care workers to thank them for their efforts in fighting COVID-19. Reviews. The good news about Animal Crossing New Horizons is that we definitely had to nitpick in order to find anything bad about this game. And we also go back in time with Retro Revival. What are you playing, Gary? Uh, FA Premier League Football. Naked Gaming. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions.
And for the rest of this episode, join me to explore just a few aspects of the mind under lockdown, from the way we talk to each other to how we look after ourselves in such a strange and difficult time. Over the weeks and months of coronavirus-induced lockdown, our conversations have gone virtual like never before. Children are attending virtual school, many of us are working from home, attending relentless video meetings and using video calls to keep in touch with friends and family. So what do we know about how a virtual chat compares with a face-to-face one? Over a video conferencing call, actually with the webcam switched off to rest my poor tired eyes, I put this to social neuroscientist Antonia Hamilton from University College London. If you're on a live video call, one-to-one, it's pretty similar to a real face-to-face conversation, how your eye movements, physiological responses behave. But then there's other aspects where it's much, much harder being on a video call. Joint attention, if I'm looking at an object or a piece of paper in front of me, to then share that with the person on the other screen is much trickier. And I've got to start sort of thinking about camera angles and turning things around. Having video calls with multiple people is much harder because you don't know who's going to speak next and you're losing track of who's where in the room. And does the quality of the communication differ? It probably does, but it's hard to pin down the exact ways in which it does. And I think it depends on the kind of conversation you're trying to have. You know, when's our next meeting and what's happening on this particular event or something. That's probably going to be just as effective in either context. Whereas if it's a difficult conversation, it's a highly personal conversation, it's probably going to have a much bigger impact on the quality. Do we know much about what's going on in the brain when we have a virtual conversation like the one we're having now compared to if I came to your office and had a chat with you? We don't know much about it. Most of our brain scanning studies put people in an MRI scanner alone in a dark, noisy tube, and normally you can't speak. So there's not very many studies of conversation and certainly not very many that have real face-to-face conversation in in an MRI scanner. There's a few and certainly it suggests that when you're face-to-face with a real person, you've got much more brain activity, you've got brain activity in these prefrontal cortex areas that really deal with social interaction. But I don't know of any studies that have directly compared face-to-face and virtual conversations. When we last spoke, you mentioned you were just about to start a study on virtual conversations. We create a virtual person who will have a conversation with you. We can have two different virtual people. So one of them nods in the way that we think is natural. And then another virtual person doesn't do the nodding. They just do some sort of other head movement behavior that isn't related to the conversation. So we can put people in those two different contexts, and then see which virtual character they like more, which one do they engage with more, which one do they learn from more, that kind of thing. They're pretty preliminary results, but certainly our data suggests that you like the character more if that character shows natural head movement behaviour, they're nodding in time with you, they're nodding in response to the things that you're saying. I've just noticed I've been nodding along to you, despite the fact that we've turned the webcam off, so you can't... (laughs) You can't see that I'm nodding along, but there we go. Yes, I was talking to somebody, I'm not sure if it was you, but somebody in radio who said that radio people do a lot of nodding when they're doing an interview behind glass and they want the other person to keep talking. I definitely find virtual communication more taxing than face-to-face. Yes. Why is it so tiring? You're not getting these cues automatically, and so you're having to make a bit more effort 
to remember that there's another person there, that they can see you. Often you're seeing yourself on the camera, which is really distracting. And so you're sort of having to work a bit harder with all of these aspects of engagement because some of the stuff that would naturally be there is missing. Can I ask you about differences in social behaviour? Because Mm-hmm. I think some people, and they move quite a bit more in conversations. And indeed, some people find it quite difficult to communicate socially. Do you think yeah. that has implications for the pretty intense time we're in now? I think it probably does, because this change is so rapid. There isn't new data yet on how people are coping with everything having to switch to virtual conversations. I know a group who are working with children with autism, interacting with them over webcam interfaces. And some of the autistic children seem to engage quite well with that because they have less anxiety when there isn't a physical person in the room, but they'll still engage with the person at the other end of the camera. But other people, I guess, find that they really want much more physical social interaction. They're not getting that from the webcam. Skype conversation doesn't leave you at the end with that same feeling of friendship, maybe, that you would have from actually having a pint in a pub with a real friend. Do you have any communication tips during this time when virtual communication is just so much more frequent? I guess the main thing is to have a bit more patience with other people, with the technology. Certainly, if it's a group call, it's very worthwhile establishing rules at the beginning of this is how we're going to organise things. Some of these bits of software have things where you can click a button to send a clap or a heart or a smile or a thumbs up or something like that to give some nonverbal signals. And we can see in the context of things like text messages, how emojis have now, you know, become this enormous world of different things because people want ways to communicate without having to put everything in words. I encourage people to use option to chat, the option to put some emojis, because all of these types of back channeling are really, really useful in conversations. And that's, again, one of the things that we often lose when we go virtual. So we can do it, but it does take more effort. It takes more patience. And it's important to take breaks and get away from the laptop as well sometimes. Remember, screen breaks are important. Thanks to Antonia Hamilton there. And as Antonia mentioned, her own study results are preliminary. They haven't been published yet or undergone peer review. Social isolation isn't easy. Even with access to the video conferencing tech Antonia was talking about, I know I'm really missing my friends and family. So how are we doing at sticking to the social distancing guidelines? Well, Sheffield and Ulster universities are asking this question at the moment, specifically of teenagers. They're surveying around 2,000 teens, asking them about their behaviour, along with questions about their well-being and their resilience, their support networks, and how much they understand why the social distancing measures were implemented. I spoke with researcher Liat Levita about the preliminary findings. About 40 to 50 percent of the people that filled in our surveys felt more anxious and worried since the lockdown. And we also found a really interesting association between how people feel and how they actually engage and are able to follow these guidelines. The more anxious people were, actually, the better they were in adhering to the social distancing guidelines. And they were depressed, they felt, the less compliant they were where it goes into clinical levels of anxiety and depression, that's something else. But I'm talking about the normal range of anxiety and depression and changes in mood that we all feel. All these behaviours that we now need to engage with 
are actually often quite new to us and they require effort. So if you're in a low mood, it's very unlikely that you will be motivated to actually perform them. With anxiety, remember the main point of anxiety is to protect us from harm. So it's actually a motivating force to do something that can prevent a, a negative outcome. What we found with young males is that they didn't think it was worthwhile to the same extent as other respondents in our survey to actually follow the guideline. So if you don't really feel that there's a point for you to do something, you're not going to do it. And that's exactly what we saw male individuals, especially older young adults, age 19 to 24, were the least likely to adhere and comply with the lockdown and social distancing guidelines. Before we split the gender, how are teens doing in general, according to your survey, in terms of following the social distancing guidelines? I would say that about 40% are actually doing really well. The younger you are, the better you are. So you should absolutely be applauding and patting yourself on the back. But that means that 60% are not doing such a great job overall. Something as simple as washing your hands every time you come home from the outside. 60% of our respondents didn't actually do that every time. And likewise, other types of behaviours in terms of keeping a distance, washing their hands more regularly than often. Again, similar types of numbers were not actually following the guidelines in a consistent fashion. Why is that? It requires effort and thought. All of us as a society are now having to adapt. Young people actually are thinking and processing information in a different way. And that could affect the degree by which they're able to engage with this. And maybe the speed where some of these behaviours are becoming habitual. And we also need to think about the environment you find yourself in. Why the gender difference? Many studies have shown that males tend to take more risks than females. And remember, I'm talking about averages here. And of course, there are huge individual differences within that. But overall, males take to take more risks and are highly influenced by their peers in terms of the type of risk-taking behaviours that they do. So their risk-taking behaviour during the time of the pandemic and the fact that they're engaging in more risk-type behaviour in terms of exposing themselves to the virus and exposing others makes sense. They are not really thinking about the consequences um, as much as females their own age. Um, and there's also another uh, interesting difference in terms of developmental trajectories between males and females. I guess peer pressure must play a quite a significant role in this. Yeah, it's huge. We asked participants, if the five people your age that you know really well, how many of them are actually following the guidelines? The male young people that we surveyed were the ones that actually reported less number of people that they know well are actually uh, following the guidelines compared to females. Your friends kind of called you up and said, we're meeting in the park. What are you going to do? Are you going to go? Are you going to go and see two meters away from them? Are you going to actually tell them, sorry, I'm following the guidelines. Can we just talk on the phone? And again, many more young male participants actually said, you know, we're going to go to the park. So if they are not thinking it's a worthwhile endeavor, as I mentioned, they're not going to follow the guidelines. And it's interesting that there's a gender divide in how the original message has been perceived by young people. So we need to change the message. And we also need to change the messengers. Peer influence, both positive and negative, during the teen years and young adulthood is huge. So if we want people to adhere and comply 
to the social distancing guidelines and also what happens in the next few months in terms of things that are changing very quickly and we will require us to adapt. We need those 40% that are actually doing really well in terms of getting the message to be able to transmit that to others. How diverse was the sample of teenagers that you spoke to? Because I'm just wondering if the people who are more likely to take part in a scientific study might be a bit more likely to engage with the science behind these lockdown guidelines? Definitely, I completely agree with you. So people taking this survey obviously had access to a computer and time to do this particular survey. So there is a bias there. And what I'm hoping to do in future studies is to make sure that the sample is more representative. However, the strength of the study and the results are such that I'm not as worried by that as I can control it in my analyses. What is coming through really consistently, even if the sample is not as representative as it could be, I am still seeing 60% of these individuals that might actually be much more privileged than young people in society as a whole are not following the guidelines. Longer term, I'm curious to know what you think about whether the isolation of lockdown is likely to change the way we behave socially. Do you think we might be maybe a little bit fearful of interacting with others post-lockdown? Do you think it might change the way we behave? I'm really interested in this and I'm glad you kind of brought it up because in this grant application I'm putting together, I'm very much going to look at that. So what happens when things change? How are we going to interact with others? Um, Is our feeling of personal space Uh, change forever? Um, Are we going to be a bit more distant with each other? Um, I think just intuitively, um, initially, yes, but very quickly that will erode. Um, I think, again, it's about habits and how used used we are to being close to other people. We see cultural differences. So where I come from, we stand very close to each other and be very affectionate and physical. When I came to the UK, actually, it was really interesting. Being close to someone else was actually uncomfortable for them, and you quickly get that. (laughs) So you wouldn't move away a little bit until you actually figured out, oh, this is the correct social distance for social interaction. And you see this variation in terms of culture and countries, and that's really interesting. So um, I'm really hoping that we can run some studies that look at this and see how long those types of changes actually last. My prediction, they won't last very long um, unless this pandemic kind of carries on for a few years if there is no vaccine, etc. And we need to keep the social distancing for a very prolonged period of time. Liat Larita there. And she and her colleagues are intending to compare the data on teens with how well adults are sticking to the guidance. These are early days in the research. This work has not yet been published or gone through peer review. Last week was Mental Health Awareness Week, and with many of us feeling the strain of lockdown, the advice I've seen around quite a lot is to try and keep socially connected, albeit virtually, with friends and family. Indeed, we heard all about virtual conversations earlier in the show. And this is all very well, but it's not such a realistic prospect if you don't have regular, reliable internet access. So I asked Liat, do we know much about how digitally excluded members of society are coping? 
No, and that's a huge issue because it's very difficult to make contact with them. But I'm talking now to representatives of the NHS who are working with children and adolescents here in Yorkshire and specifically in Sheffield to see if we can actually get in touch with young people that are in more vulnerable situations like that, where they don't have access to technology and social networking sites and understanding how they're coping and how we can help them to cope in this kind of situation. Of course, the digitally excluded aren't just young. A lack of internet-enabled equipment, meeting the cost of being online, insufficient bandwidth or low ICT literacy can affect people at any age. Here's Cambridge University mental health researcher Olivia Reams. Surveys show that 22% of people in the UK don't have the digital skills for everyday life. This survey was undertaken last year. It is one of the largest studies ever done on this topic. It's the UK Consumer Digital Index Survey, and it shows that almost 12 million people in the UK can't manage their money online. They're not able to find a job online. And there are 4.1 million adults in the UK that are still yet to go online. Now, some other interesting facts, 6 million people in the UK cannot turn on a device and 7.1 million cannot open an app. Now, you would think that it's usually elderly people that are offline, but actually almost half of those who are offline are under the age of 60. And also a lot of people that have low incomes are more likely to be digitally excluded. Now, if we're looking at some of the reasons, you know, why are there so many people that are not online? Why do we have so much digital exclusion? Number one, it's motivation and perceived competence. Some people are not motivated to go online or they don't think that they have what it takes to be able to navigate this online world. So sometimes it's about perception and what you think you can do. And it's very easy to change that, to change perceptions and to increase confidence. Now, there are also fears around cybersecurity and fraud. I guess there you're talking specifically about digital skills rather than access to digital technology, which is another significant reason why some people are excluded from the digital world. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to the stats, there are 4.1 million people in the UK that are still yet to go online. And there are mental health implications when it comes to this. Such as? Right now, education has moved online. And if you're disadvantaged, you often can't access online learning. It's either pay for the Wi-Fi or pay for the food. You know, this is what some families have been describing it as. Now, education is so important for our mental health. If you are well-educated, then you're less likely to get depression, to develop anxiety. And not only that, but it's develops your brain, it equips you with skills, and it offers you opportunities. So, you know, there are clear implications like that during the pandemic. Now, other things, you know, if you're digitally excluded, you're not able to go online to check your emails, you're not able to order groceries online, to apply for jobs, or even accessing essential health guidance online. And not being able to do basic life things then this can make you very anxious. It can stress you out and it can make you depressed. It can make it hard to fall asleep at night. So, you know, there are um, serious mental health consequences when it comes to not being able to access and to use technology. And also for looking at accessing mental health services, 
the numbers show that the number of young people accessing child and adolescent mental health services has fallen by 30 to 40% since the pandemic began. Now, this is because before the pandemic, a lot of these referrals for young people were made uh, through, were made in schools and schools are closed down right now. And so a lot of, a lot of uh, children, adolescents who would need these referrals, they don't get them anymore. And sometimes these young people are stuck in very difficult situations at the moment. They're living in unstable households. They're exposed to trauma, you know, all sorts of um, difficult um, things going on in their lives, and they're not able to get the mental health help that they need. So there are several mental health implications that are tied to this. You're hoping to look into this topic of digital exclusion and lockdown-related mental health a bit more, aren't you? What, what are your plans? Exactly. Our plans are to use the power of the media, especially radio and TV would be a great add-on to this as well, because for those people that are not able to go online, to use a computer, that don't have a mobile phone, a lot of people still listen to the radio, you know, the traditional forms of communication. So it's important to use those and disseminate information to educate the public about things like how can you improve your mental health during this time? What can you do? How can you overcome challenges? Now, there are some things that we as a society can do to target this problem of digital exclusion. Number one, public education campaigns, raising awareness about this and about how going online is so helpful for us and for managing our daily lives. This can motivate people. It can inspire the public to boost their digital skills and it can help them to understand what steps they need to take to avoid things like fraud and you know other threats online. This is really important. And this survey that I was talking about, the UK Consumer Digital Index Survey, it in this uh, the report that came out, it says that people who are earlier on in their digital journey may find it more difficult to improve at first, but as capability improves, momentum increases. So motivation follows action. And I think that's a really hopeful message to get out there. And to finish off the show, Olivia's got some well-being tips for us. There are some things that we can do to help ourselves during this time and to improve our mental health during the time of the pandemic. One of the things is knowing that knowledge is power. So right now, all sorts of worries are going through our mind, worrying about if we're going to get sick or if, one or if somebody in our family is going to get sick. And oftentimes we think that worrying can help us arrive at a better solution or we're being proactive about a situation. But worrying for even a short amount of time predisposes to even more worrying. And before you know it, you're stuck in a vicious cycle out of which you can't get out. It really is a myth that worrying helps you arrive at a better solution. If anything, it only makes you feel worse. It makes you feel more anxious and stressed. And that's especially the case if the worrying becomes excessive and uncontrollable. Now, knowing this is really helpful because it can help you take steps forward. If you cut the worrying, then you won't fare worse for doing so. In fact, you will fare better. Your mental health will improve and the anxiety will subside. Now, something else that can really help during this difficult time is to develop mastery to take charge of your life. Now, what do I mean by that? 
Well, the world around us is changing and we're living in chaotic times. Now, a good way to maintain our mental health and to take charge of our lives is to schedule and monitor positive activities. This is really important. Positive activities like going for short walks, trying that new spicy curry recipe or anything else that you might enjoy. And it's not only important to just schedule them, but also to monitor them, to make sure that you're doing them on a consistent basis. Now, when we take time to engage in pleasant activities, research shows that we not only begin to feel pleasure, but also mastery. When you have mastery, you start to feel satisfied with your life and your sense of control comes back. And if you suffer from depression, which a lot of people during this pandemic are suffering from, this technique is particularly useful. It's basically like a crane that can help lift you out of a low state. Another thing that is really important for anybody, really, you know, for people that are really sick, for those who are taking care of sick people during this pandemic, or if you're at home, you know, and you're wondering what you can do for your mental health, well, get rid of defensive pessimism. If you do this, it means that you're on the road to building a more positive mood state. Now, to some people, trying to become happy or trying to do things to make them feel better can be scary or even aversive. Scheduling things into your life that make you feel happy can be frightening or a totally new experience, especially if depression has been a part of your life for a long time. The roller coaster of emotions that we've been experiencing throughout this pandemic might make us cautious of being too happy too quickly, because what if it doesn't last? What if it doesn't work out and we get hurt? Isn't it better to not expect anything, not get too excited and maintain a position of defensive pessimism? But the answer is no, because when we do this, our lives become a flat line. And isn't it better to experience a life with ups and downs, like a wave with crests and troughs? And the very last thing, which is important for, for anybody really, and especially for people that still have to stay inside, for the vulnerable, for those who are sick, for elderly people, you know, when you're inside your house and you don't have people surrounding you, then you are tempted to uh, start daydreaming, thinking of better times or thinking about how your situation is so bad. In other words, your mind starts wandering. But according to research, mind wandering is tied to depression. And what's interesting is that even thinking about positive things, daydreaming, daydreaming is also not very good. It's best to focus on the present moment. And again, if we're going back to the science, uh, there's this whole research field on savoring, savoring techniques. So basically you're doing something in the moment, focusing on a task and thinking about the positive aspects of that task that can really help lift your mood. Thanks very much, Olivia. And actually, that's all we've got time for in this episode of Naked Neuroscience. Thank you to all of our guests. You heard from Helen Keyes, Duncan Astle, Antonia Hamilton, Liat Levita and Olivia Reams. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next month with more Naked Neuroscience. And in the meantime, you can get in touch. It's neuroscience at nakedscientist.com or you can find us on the Naked Scientist social media channels. I've been Casey Haler from the Naked Scientist team. Until next time... Thanks very much for listening and goodbye.
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.